The passage that we've uh, come to this morning uh, is not very well known. You've probably uh, never heard much about it. It probably wasn't in the you know, Sunday school series maybe that you heard on Joseph's life. And uh, even if you uh, have read it in your life, you've probably kind of forgotten about it or it's just a vague recollection. But in the biblical scheme of things, this passage is actually famous. You see, there is this text in, uh, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, where the writer is speaking about the great heroes of faith in the Bible. And not only does he begin to list their, their names, but for each hero, he gives an example of, of, of this great moment of faith in their life. So with Abel, he says, when he made his more acceptable sacrifice. It's a great moment of faith. With Noah, when he built the ark. A great moment of faith. Abraham, when he was really willing to sacrifice Isaac. It was by faith. Sarah, when she trusted God about having a child in her old age. A big moment of faith. And Jacob is included in this list, in this list of heroes. And this story, this obscure story from chapter 48 of Genesis, is given as the example of his great faith. Let me, let me read it here. I need to put my glasses on. From Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. This moment, as Jacob blesses his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, is recorded for all of history as Jacob's big moment of faith. And did you notice that it, it combines it? He has faith, and then he, it talks about him bowing in worship, which gives you the, the flavor of, of this faith. It's not this, this vague hope. It's this worshiping faith, right? It's this real faith that glorifies God in active trust. It's a worshiping faith, which, of course, kind of begs the question, how so? Why is this moment in Jacob's life such a worshiping faith moment to be held up above just about any other moment he could have put forward? What can we learn about real worshiping faith from this moment in chapter 48? Well, as Andrew and Jay and I were discussing it this week, we came up with a, with a few things. Just happened to be three main points. Um, but before we jump into them, we need to do two things. First, we need to note that although Jacob is the hero here who, who exemplifies this worshiping faith, Joseph is the learner. He is the one who is kind of challenged to such faith in this passage. It kind of switches things up here. We're used to Joseph being more in the hero position but he's the learner, and as such, as we apply things to our life this week, we're, we're kind of relating a lot to Joseph. Secondly, 
We need to review the story, the occasion of Jacob's heroic faith, in case you uh, weren't listening to the reading or you happened to space out a bit, or you found it hard to track, which this story can be. You see, Jacob is dying, which he has been for the past couple chapters and will continue to do in the next chapter, if you notice. They've got to stretch out this dying moment for Jacob. And uh, his two Egyptian half-caste grandsons are brought before him, Joseph's sons. It's kind of a say good moment, uh, goodbye to grandpa moment. And in this poignant moment, Jacob summons his strength. It says he summons his strength and he sits up in his bed and he blesses them. But not with just, you know, some general blessing, you know, I love you, wish the best for you, may God be with you kind of blessing. No, he, he blesses them with adoption, with this patriarchal adoption into the 12 sons of promise. He authoritatively and almost shockingly says to Joseph, as Joseph brings his sons, they're mine. Did you see that? Look at verse 5 with me. This is what he says. And your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And actually a little more accurately in, in the Hebrew it's as uh, he says it's uh, at like Reuben and Simeon they will be to me. And when we come to verse 49, chapter 49, the next chapter, we know that this means that these grandsons are going to be taking the place of Reuben and Simeon in the family. Reuben and Simeon, because of their sinful behavior, are out, and Ephraim and Manasseh are in. You can read more about this in 1 Chronicles 5, 1 and 2 if you're interested. They, Ephraim and Manasseh, are the new firstborn sons of Jacob, the new leaders of the tribes of Israel. And he even says in verse 6 that their other brothers and sisters, the other children that Joseph will have, will be incorporated into their inheritance, i.e. they'll become part of their tribes. And this whole gesture... It's not just some spontaneous kind of sentimental moment. You know, the emotional words of a dying man that, that nobody takes that seriously. That, that Reuben and Simeon could kind of challenge later and say, oh, I don't care what he said. I mean, you guys aren't in our place. And we know this because in verse 8, the whole moment gets formalized. They've come in. They've talked about it. He's mentioned them by name. But then verse 8, look what it says. When Israel, that's Jacob, saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Note, he already knows who they are. But he says, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. He starts this 
scholars point out the, the formal adoption process. Like in a wedding when they come forward and I say, who gives this woman to be married? He says, who are these? This is how it starts. And he says, they are my sons. They are being given over. First with the question, then they are embraced and kissed by Jacob. Then Joseph literally takes them from his lap and moves both of them before his father, bowing, it says, his face to the ground. The oldest, Manasseh, is placed before Jacob's right hand, and the youngest, Ephraim, before his left. And then Jacob places his hands upon their heads for the official blessing moment and, and prays the prayer of blessing. And this finalizes and solidifies the adoption process so that it's done. They are his before God. It was interesting to me as I read this, having adopted several children, how throughout the ages, adoption this has always been seen as this solemn rite that, that, is, that has this finality to it. When you adopt children, even from Washington State, they tell you at the end of it, this child is, is as if they were born to you. This is your child. You are fully responsible. So back to the question. How is this a great moment of faith? How does this exhibit worshiping faith? Well, there are a couple things to note about this. And the first is how the whole scene starts with Jacob remembering the faithfulness of God. That's point one. Real faith, worshiping faith. Heroic faith, in that matter, always starts by looking back. It remembers God's faithfulness. It recognizes and rests on what he has done in the past, what he has promised, how he has been steadfast and faithful along the way. This is exactly how Jacob establishes the basis of this whole adoption event. He says to Joseph, as he sits before him with his two sons on his knees, in verse 3, Let's read, and Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty, that's El Shaddai, appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make of you a company of peoples and I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. He remembers and, and recounts what God Almighty has done, the promises of blessing that, that came to Abraham and then were passed to him in the land of Lutz, that, that they would be God's special people and that he would multiply them into a great nation and that he would give them a land. He remembers, he remembers it out loud as he begins the adoption process. And note that he comes back to such remembrance as he finishes the process. Look at verse 15. And he blessed Joseph and said, 
the God before, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the boys. He moves beyond here. You notice he moves beyond the, the ancient promises recounting how, how God has, has saved them to, to kind of personally how God has saved him and shepherded and, and guided him and how he's redeemed his life from all evil. I love that. As it reflects on, on God's faithfulness, he knows what his life would have been and how his life would have gone had the Lord not intervened. He knows he has been redeemed from all evil. My friends, this is the basis of a vibrant worshiping faith. Remembering not only how God has acted to save his people, but how he specifically has acted to save you, how he's redeemed you out of evil, how he's been shepherding you through it all. This is foundational. If, if we can get this right, I think we as believers can have a strong faith. The problem is this is not easy. <laughs> especially for sinners. It's not easy as believers to remember. The problem is that we are very forgetful as a people. I don't know if you guys have ever read the book of Judges, but that's the whole point. They have this cycle of forgetfulness where they fall into sin they get conquered by their enemies. They cry out to God. He sends a savior. And then it says, and they forgot God, and they fall into sin. They get conquered by their enemies, and he saves them. And it says, they do well for a while, and it says, and they forgot God. And it goes over and over and over again through the book. That's us. Even Jacob was forgetful for much of his life. If you've been here for the series, you know that after things went bad with Joseph and he thought Joseph had died, he fell into this kind of depression where he just decided that his life was given over to Sheol, the place of the dead, and he would be sorrowful forever. He was in that state for years of depressed faithlessness. But something has happened, if you noticed, in his older years towards the end here. We saw it last week, and we see it this week. He's, he, he looks back now, and he seems to have this new clarity. He sees. He remembers God's salvation and his promises and his shepherding. It's like, it's like he's kind of traveled through all the vicissitudes of life, the mountains and the valleys, and he's finally reached this vista and he, as he's about to die, and he kind of looks back over all of it. And he sees God's salvation, God's work. And it's a moment of, of great faith where he trusts God in, in a way that he's willing, in a sense, to give up his own sons and, and take on these Egyptian boys to assume the mantle of promise. 
My friends, if we want to be people of, of great faith, real worshiping faith, we must be people of remembrance. People who look back to God's salvation, to what he did at the cross through his son and remember. And people who look back at his faithfulness in our own lives. How he drew us in and saved us. He's been shepherding us. How are you with remembering? The Hebrews used to tape a box to their head of the law right here, a little scroll, so they wouldn't forget it. In fact, they still do it, many, some of them. So they wouldn't forget. How are you with remembering God's faithfulness? I wrote down a few tips for this, to be better rememberers. The first is, guess what? Church. We come here and open this book, the Bible, to remember. We have a liturgical calendar of celebration. We have Christmas to remember his birth. Good Friday to remember Christ's death. Easter to remember his resurrection. We're all about remembering. We come to the Lord's table in remembrance to remember what Christ has done. This is a fellowship of remembering together. You really can't do well in faith without remembering, and he's given you the fellowship to do it in. Second tip, some personal markers, especially when it comes to his faithfulness in your life. Remember in, in Joshua 4 when God held back the water so they could cross into the promised land? And what did they do to remember it? They built this giant pile of stones, the stones of remembrance, so that when their kids would say, what's that pile of stones about? They'd say, oh, that's when God saved us. I have a little marker of, if you've been in my office, hanging above my door is my 1977 Schwinn Stingray that I got for Christmas that year. I know I've talked about it before. I like it. But I have it up there not because I like the bike, but because that bike was stolen that year. And my parents were like, uh, son, it's gone. You're never going to see it again. But I prayed about it every day for weeks. And one day we were driving home from school. We're literally kind of on this almost highway. And there's my bike leaned up against this wall. I said, Mom, there's my bike. She didn't believe me. But finally she turned around, went back. There was my bike. And it hangs on my wall. To remember, because for me at 10 years old, that was like, God is real. And when my kids ask about it, I can tell them. Finally, the last tip is old folks. Right? This is what my parents are for me. They're kind of like Jacob. They have this perspective of the years. And although their eyes are growing dim, they see better than me spiritually. They remember. We have some good rememberers in this church. Lean on them. Now, there's another aspect here to Jacob's worshiping faith. He doesn't merely look back and remember God's past faithfulness. He also, in this faith moment, looks forward and, and gives his future, the future, over to God. That's the... That's point two today. Worshiping faith surrenders our future to God. 
It remembers God's past faithfulness, and it surrenders to his future plans. This is what Jacob is doing with this whole adoption of, of Ephraim and Manasseh. This, you, you know this wasn't his plan. You can bet that he, when he imagined the future for his 12 sons, the sons of promise, through whom God would grow his people and bless the world, that this was never in his scheme of things. He never envisioned son number one and son number two going so far off into sin that he would need to delete them from the family line and replace them. No parent envisions that or wants it. Every parent will want to do everything to fix that. But God has other plans. Plans to incorporate these Egyptian sons into his family of promise in the place of these, his first two sons. And, and, and Jacob goes with it. I'm sure he didn't fully understand, but he kind of sees. Look at, verse, look at verse 11 of our text. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. He thought, Joseph is gone. I'm never going to see you again. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. He sees that, that God is doing something with these boys, and he, and he surrenders. Whatever plans he had, whatever control he thought he had, he surrenders it over to God's future, to what he has in store, and he receives these boys in blessing. It's quite a moment of faith. But who I really, this is, this is where I want us to really think about Joseph and notice him in this moment. I think his surrender of the future is, is even bigger. Handing his sons over in this moment that's not easy. And think about the way it changed their future drastically and his. They were set to be Egyptian kind of aristocracy. Sons in those days tended to take on their father's mantle, take over his family business. They were to be the future managers of Pharaoh's fortunes, commanders of his household properties viceroys of his people. Their lives were going to be comfortable and posh and beautiful and safe, enjoying the pleasures of Nile front living, kind of the Egyptian Riviera. But Joseph in this moment, believing God's words of promise that his people will be given a land and bless the world, acts in faith and gives them over thus sealing his sons off from any such Egyptian ascendancy. They will, not, they will now be sons of a Hebrew shepherd, part of a people abominated by the Egyptians and eventually enslaved. What a surrender of, of one's future, of, of his family's future, at least at the earthly level. He gave it all over. And it does historically seem to play out that way. Not only do we never hear of any of Joseph's children achieving any kind of rank or stature in Egypt, but any reports of his favor and prosperity in Egypt begin to run dry as well. 
I think this was definitely a turning point of downward mobility. It reminds me of what Hebrews says about Moses' Egyptian life of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, that same chapter of, of heroes, says this in verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. My friends, our future reward is secure in heaven, but will we surrender over kind of our immediate futures right here on earth, in this life? Especially when it involves things very dear to us, like our children. I remember when George Murray, who was then the president of Columbia International University, a Bible college that sends missionaries out over, over the world. He stood in this pulpit on one of our mission Sundays, and he says, you know what the number one thing that keeps the graduates of his school from going to the mission field is? Their parents. They had plans, and it didn't include their grandchildren growing up way off in the middle of nowhere. Have you surrendered your future to God? We all have an idea about what our future, you know, might look like. Maybe we haven't articulated, but we have it in our minds, in our, you know, in our career circumstances, in our relational status, in our family life, what we kind of think it will be. I remember when I was just heading off to Bible college, fresh out of high school, I had big plans in my mind. You know, uh... Marital-wise, I was going to meet a godly, hot girl, get married by 23. Nope. Not the first year at college, not the second year at college, not the third year, not the fourth, not even after college when I'm living in my parents' basement. <laughs> More years went by, and then eventually the godly, hot girl, in God's timing, Tricia, came along. And my uh, plans for family have a few you know, well-mannered children, like maybe two or three? Nope. Nine out of control. Reuben and Simeon got nothing. Which, by the way, I will adopt them out. Replace them with some Egyptians. Get a pastorate job in some warmer climate, you know? I was from Illinois, like San Diego. Nope, Spokane. Will we surrender our future plans and dreams over to God? It's what a real worshiping faith does. It remembers God's past faithfulness and blessing, and it surrenders our future to him. And finally, it does one more thing I think that we see here. It trusts God's way of blessing now. It trusts God's wisdom and how he distributes his blessing in our lives right now. You see, things immediately get very real for Joseph in this whole trusting faith thing. Because Joseph, as he's giving over his sons, something happens. 
as Jacob is, is praying blessing upon his sons, I don't know if you noticed, but he switches his hands over on the two sons. I think the title on the bulletin says the revered, it's supposed to be the reversed hands of blessing. There's a misspelling there. He switches his hands over. So that his right hand, the one reserved for the firstborn, is on Ephraim and the second the secondborn son's head. He switches the priority of blessing. And when Joseph sees this, he immediately tries to fix it. Look at verse 17 with me. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. More specifically, it says this was wrong in his eyes. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph, said to his, and Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he. And his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Joseph can hardly believe what's happening. It seems so wrong. Manasseh has been raised his whole life to be the firstborn. This is a big part of his identity. He expects the greater blessing. He's been prepared for the greater blessing. It's due him, isn't it? I think Joseph is probably hurt and, and for, for his jilted son. And he does what any parent would do. He tries to fix it. He tries to force his father's hands the other way. But Jacob, as he resolutely holds his hands in their God-ordained place, just says, I know, my son, I know. He's saying to Joseph, I know your desires and predilections. I know what you expect to happen for your eldest. I know you don't understand and it hurts. I know you want to fix things and put the blessing where, where you think it should go. Distribute God's grace in the way you would expect it. But this is right, son. This reversal of blessing is God's way and we must trust him. We must trust that he knows better. We must trust his way of blessing, the sovereignty of his grace. You ever been there? There was some cherished desire in your heart that you kind of assumed God would honor because it was good and right. Perhaps the desire for children. Perhaps a desire to serve him overseas in missions. But, but he, he directed another way. He placed his hand for you somewhere else. And you tried to force his hand and fix it for God. But he's just said, I know. I know. Mark and Aaliyah McIntyre, many of you know them. 
He'd been in our church a long time. I remember when they came and he was studying at Moody to be an aviation pilot. He was an excellent pilot. They were looking forward to life overseas, serving. But then Mark was just out of nowhere, started to have some seizures, and he was grounded, not allowed to fly. The blessing God had for them was, was here, not over there. Here as they serve training pilots and serving at our church. I think God knew we needed him here. Many of you have been personally and directly blessed by them in your life. See, his way of blessing is better and it's right. This is a hard truth for us. Did you notice that this, uh, this crossed hands of blessing idea is repeated throughout the Old Testament? This isn't the first time that the secondborn has been exalted over the first. Isaac chosen before Ishmael. Jacob chosen over Esau. Joseph chosen over all his brothers. And now Ephraim over Manasseh. What did we learn last week about why things are repeated a lot in the Bible? What did we learn? It's because we're dumb. (laughs) We're slow. Slow to understand that God's ways are not our ways. Slow to trust him. How often do I think I know how God's grace and blessing should be distributed? Who should get it? How much? And in what form it should come? And of course... It's all evaluated by some random scale of deservedness in my head, making it not grace at all. The crossed hands of blessing here remind us of of the wildness of God's mercy, the mystery of his grace, that he chooses what is foolish in this world to shame the wise, that he chooses what is weak to shame the strong, that he chooses what is despised and nothing, that no human being might boast in his presence. His wisdom, his grace, his way is better. This is what makes the gospel so wonderfully untamed. We would never pick what God does with his grace, would we? Have you ever looked at someone and thought, God saved you? He blessed your life? That's not what I would have done. I mean, I knew you in high school. You were a jerk. And they're, and they're thinking, eh, ditto. You see, without this truth, none of us would be here. In a sense, we, all of us as Gentiles, are like the Egyptian outsider boys here. We weren't inherently the children of promise, were we? We were, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.12, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you you who were once far off have been brought near by his blood. See, God has placed his gracious hand of blessing on us, and, and we've been adopted in, haven't we? Let me tell you, whether you come, you know, or an Ephraim or a Manasseh in the equation, it's all good blessing. 
Jacob sees it. Joseph is learning it, and it's hard. It's hard to see and to remember and to trust. I think that's why this, this whole section ends with these reassuring words from Jacob to his son. Verse 21, then Israel said to Joseph, after the whole adoption process, the whole blessing, says, then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with the sword and with my bow. He said, son, I know this is hard, but remember, God is with you in this journey. He is bringing you home to his land. And by the way, I already purchased you a plot. It's a mountain slope. It's got a great view. Let's pray. Father, you have been faithful in your son and in our lives. May you help us to look back and remember And may we look forward and and surrender whatever future we think we have to you. And may we trust your gracious wisdom now, even when we don't understand. May we live in worshiping faith. Your son Jesus' name, amen.